Oh, we got a second. Motion passes. So welcome everybody. Hope you're having a uh, good week so far. Let's get ready, get close to the holidays. Um, next week, I believe, let me double check on the calendar. But yeah, next week will be our last week that we meet for this year. So we'll finish next week, two weeks off, and then we'll pick back up at the beginning of January. So make a note of that. To show up the week after next, there will not be this food here. 22 and 29. Yeah, 22nd and 29th, we're not meeting. So make note. Um, what we're gonna do today is we're gonna finish uh, chapter 36, chapter 35 and 36, then part of 36, and then kind of give you a brief recap. And next week, we'll probably finish up the book uh, because of the structure of Exodus, how it's set up. In chapter 35, what we have is, <clears throat> so things are back on track. Uh, the people committed mass rebellion, like apostasy type rebellion. They, the covenant was in danger. The covenant was actually broken. Shattered. There was a suspense on whether God would forgive the people or not. And he actually um, expressed to Moses that the people were done. And Moses pleaded and interceded on their behalf, willing to take the punishment on himself as well, unless God would forgive them. So, in this exchange between God and Moses, where there's this really intimate conversation, this face to face encounter, God's very human in these chapters in many ways. And God allows himself to be persuaded by Moses. And he restores the covenant, forgives the people, though there's still punishment and there's still ramifications for their sins, the forgiveness is still there. And then he issues the covenant again. So there's a, there's a restoring of it. It's the same covenant. It's not like a plan B covenant. It's, it's the same one. He just does it encapsulated in a shorter format. He reinstates the covenant with them. And that's what we saw in the last chapter. And then Moses gives Moses this seal of his approval. Moses has this face-to-face -face encounter with God atop Mount Sinai where there's smoke and there's fire and there's light and there's, there's terror. And so when Moses comes out of God's presence, he actually has some of this terror, some of this radiance with him. We talked about how the radiant doesn't mean shiny happy it means like fearful like this this penetrating piercing light and it used the hebrew term for horns uh, to describe the light that was shooting out of moses face to the point where he had to cover in order for the people to even be able to approach him without fear so moses was given he was delegated some of yahweh's awesomeness in, in the old sense of the word not in today's modern music like awe-inspiring nature so then Moses, the first thing he does is he gathers the people. Chapter 35, verse 1, Moses assembled the whole Israelite community. The last time that word, the last time it was used was when the people assembled to come to Aaron and say to build the golden calf. So the last assembly of the people was for the purpose of idolatry and rebellion. Now, post-forgiveness, the covenant's back on track. The people, Moses assembles them together, and there's going to be a whole different type of of giving their, their precious things, their gold, for a whole other purpose. 
So chapter 35 mirrors uh, or provides a contrast to chapter 32 with the golden calf in a lot of ways. And some of the commentaries that you can read will note the different contrast between the golden calf and how it was described as being put together and what we read in chapter 35 and through the rest to chapter 39. But down in verse 4, so we ended last week at uh, Moses commanded, the first thing he starts off with is a commandment of Sabbath keeping. So Sabbath is undergirding them. We talked about the importance of Sabbath. If you missed it, catch the video for the podcast from last week. But verse 4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and the hides of sea cows, or dugongs, or, or porpoise skins, or we don't know what it is, but it's a waterproof leather type aquatic animal. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breast piece. So now Moses, unlike in the golden calf incident where the people come to Aaron and say, give us a god to worship, make us a god, and Aaron says, all right, give me all your gold. He makes this, fashions this golden calf. Moses instead, instead of commanding the people, he says, here's what you're going to do. Everyone whose heart is moved, everyone who's on board with this, bring your best stuff. Bring the best stuff that you have. And all of these things that are listed are the best stuff that they would have. This is the stuff they would have left Egypt with, that the Egyptians would have given them. When they, when the Egyptians gave them all of their, their treasure and all of their precious stuff and said, get out of here. You know, and the text says, so they plundered the Egyptians, metaphorically, meaning that they left with all of Egypt's spoils. This is the stuff that they would have brought, these types of things. They've been in the desert for a couple of months, almost a year, actually. So they don't have access to all of these on a regular basis. This is the stuff they would have had with them, their goods. And they all are to bring them together. Then verse 10, all who are skilled among you, and literally in the Hebrew, the literal version of skilled is wise of heart, or wise of mind, or heart and mind are the same in Hebrew. And, and it's, it's not skilled like, you know, they know a few things. It's wisdom is applied knowledge. And so being skilled in this sense means having the skills and being able to apply it to a purpose that God has called. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. And then he's going to list the things. And there's about 17 or 18 of them. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering glass, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. So the tabernacle, the tent, the actual tent in the middle of their assembly. The ark with its poles and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it. So the thing that goes in the tabernacle, the ark itself where the, the Ten Commandments will be put, and Aaron's rod later will find out, and some of the manna, the actual ark, the cover that goes on the ark with the two cherubim facing each other, the thing they pulled, took off in Indiana Jones and their faces melted, that's the ark. So the cover of the ark, that's the mercy seat, that's the place where atonement is made, that's God's throne, symbolically, in Israel's ancient religion. God's, where God dwells above the cherubim, above the winged creatures. So those, the curtain that shields that, so that the thing that separates that from the rest of the tabernacle inside the Holy of Holies, uh, the table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence, so the table's right outside of that curtain that symbolizes God's meal, his dining with his people, his desire for them to come share a meal with him. 
the lamp stand that is for light with its accessories, lamps, oils for the light. So that's right across from the bread of the presence. And that's the menorah, the tree, symbolizing the very presence of God. And, and it has allusions to the tree of the knowledge of, or I mean the tree of life and uh, the light of God's presence, all of this. So it's working its way out from the inner part of the uh, tabernacle. Uh, the altar of incense with its poles, so that's right outside of the main part, where that's where the incense is burned, so that it fills the room, so that it creates the smoke, and so that the priest would have a certain smell to them. The anointing oil and the fragrant incense, we talked about that a few weeks ago. The curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, so now we're out to the curtain that actually is the main entrance to the tabernacle itself. The bronze basin, oh, excuse me, uh, the altar of bird offering with its bronze grating, its poles, and its utensils. So that's God's barbecue set we saw. That's where the sacrifices are cooked, <laughs> right outside the tabernacle in the courtyard. We moved out into the courtyard. That's where the sacrifices are cooked. The bronze basin with its stand, that's where the priests are washed. That's where the sacrifices are washed, when the fat portions are washed. That's the cleansing part. Uh, the curtains of the courtyard with their poles and bases and the curtains for the entrance to the courtyard. So that's the actual thing that surrounds the tabernacle with the drawings, the, the curtains that surround the whole thing. Um, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyards and their ropes, because it would blow away if there's no pegs and ropes, so it's, it's a tent, remember. And 19, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary. Both the sacred garments for Aaron and the priests and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. The last thing is what the priests will actually wear. This is what the tabernacle consists of. This system of Old Testament worship consists of these things. This is, this is the list that Moses is saying. This is what we need. All right, so you're going to bring and you're going to make this stuff. Not you're going to bring it, give it to Aaron. He's going to carve it and then say, oh, here's your gods. But you're going to actually come, and, and as a community, we're going to be involved in this together, creating God's mobile dwelling, God's tent. This is very much God, the God of Mount Sinai, who's above all gods, who's over all the earth, who created everything, who laid out the stars. All of that is going to, for this period in Israel's history, going to willingly live in a tent in their midst. Mount Sinai is going to come down and it's going to be replicated symbolically through the different materials. And then we looked at that a few weeks ago. Catch the video if you want to catch up on that. It's going to be symbolically recreated in this tabernacle. And the people are going to camp around Mount Sinai. And as they are right now. And that's going to go wherever God leads them. So God is preparing them for preparing them for uh, the God of all creation to dwell atop Mount Sinai above the heavenly angels, but in their midst. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, but he's also imminent, and he's accessible, and he's there in their midst. It's a huge lesson in the theology of God that will play out in the New Testament as well, when the ultimate example of God tabernacling takes place in the form of Jesus. In fact, John chapter 1 will specifically say the word became flesh and tabernacle among us. And it will use that verb that's used of this building. Right? So Jesus, that's why Jesus will then say, tear down this temple, I'll build it again in three days. And the text says he was talking about his body. Jesus will embody the temple and the tabernacle. All of this stuff ties together 
when we understand and appreciate the original uh, reference that he's talking about. So this is what Moses calls, he asks for, verse 20. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Now next year when we do Leviticus, we'll learn some about wave offerings. But a wave offering was a symbolic offering where you take your gift, usually it was an animal, you wave it, you hold it up, you give it, and then you take it back. That's the waving, not like a wave, but like waving. And what it is, is you're giving it to God and then recognizing that he is giving it back to you to use for his purpose, for his glory. In the case of most wave offerings, it was for a meal that you would eat in the presence, in the, in the uh, gathering. And it was symbolic of you saying, Lord, I'm giving you the best of my herds, my flocks, my crops, and you in your mercy are giving it back to me, except for a portion that would remain for the priest in the temple, You're giving it back to me for us to enjoy, to participate, whatever, to use, or whatever. So it says the people brought all their gold for a wave offering to the Lord. They're giving it all to God, and then God is giving it back to them, not to spend on themselves, but to use for his kingdom purpose. And that undergirds a lot of the theology of giving, even today in the New Testament, even when we give, that's what we're doing. You put your money in the offering plate, it's a very watered-down way of doing this. You're basically giving your gift to the Lord, and then he is, through the offering and through the ministry of the church, giving it to the church to use according to wisdom and stewardship and integrity and all the stuff that some churches don't always do a great job at. But that's the purpose. That's how it's supposed to be. That's what's going on when there's this gift. So the people do this. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, or ram skins dyed red, or hides of sea cows brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver and bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it. Remember, there's not forests or trees around, so the wood would have come from their implements, from their wagons, from their chests, from their, you know, rods, staffs, whatever. It's kind of a very hodgepodge thing that's been put together. There's no, there's no uh, going to Lowe's and getting a nice plain plank of lumber. Uh, Every skilled, verse 25, every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat's hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. So there's a call for the stuff to be given, then there's a fulfillment of the stuff that's given. Moses said, bring all this, the people brought all this, and list them out. This is a call fulfillment literary motif. Now this, this is a mini version in this chapter. The whole next four chapters are gonna be a macro version of this. 
in the ancient Near East, and there's examples of it in Ugaritic literature, I think the King Kirit or King Kirta epic has an example of this, where the god or the leader will, will request something be done in detail, and then there will be this long recounting of it being done in detail, monotonous detail, to the point where the reader's like, okay, why don't you just say they said to do it and they did it? But it's not. It's this is what you're going to do, and it's going to list it out, and then the fulfillment of it lists it all out in detail. It's intentional. It's to, it's, to, it's to hammer home the point that what was commanded was exactly what was carried out. Not haphazardly or not close enough, but it was specifically carried out. And that's what the next four chapters of Exodus are going to do. Chapters back, think back to chapters like 25, 26, 27, when it was laying out the patterns for the tabernacle, for the ephod, for the breastpiece, for the incense, for all of these parts. The next few chapters are going to just specifically say, and the people did it, and they made this, and they made this. It was this many cubits. It was this much in weight. And it's going to match the text that's already come before. That's why we're not going to read through it again in detail, but hopefully you'll read it on your own, you'll see that the fulfillment is what's being emphasized. God commands it, it's being fulfilled. You can think of it like the ultimate 80s montage. If you ever remember 80s movies, I grew up in the 80s, everybody in the 80s movies knows at some point there's going to be a montage. There's going to be somebody training for a big battle or a big fight or, or getting their car ready for the big race or whatever cliche 80s movie thing. And instead of showing all of the labor, they cut to an 80s guitar riff and a song that gets you pumped, like I Had the Tiger or whatever, <laughs> and there's this clips of them doing these things, right? It's, it's clips of them, do, whether it's daniel son wax on, wax off, and him doing that and standing on the boat trying not to fall in, whether it's Rocky with Apollo running on the beach hugging each other, all of these things, it's like a montage. What that's telling you is that you're, you're listening, you're watching it as the viewer, and you're saying, oh, this is really a longer period of time, and it's just condensing it, but I know what's happening, is, is, is they're, they're fulfilling what needs to be done in order for the final thing to be overcome, whether it's an obstacle, a hurdle, a big race, a big match, whatever. So these chapters function in many ways like an 80s movie montage. Where it's like you can imagine you hear the like the, the eye of the tiger type music playing in the background, and you see the Hebrew women sewing the goat's hair together, and then over here you see the Hebrew gem cutters cutting the stones, and then the guitar kicks in, and you see them measuring the curtains. That's the kind of thing that's going on in these chapters. You're seeing the work being fulfilled. Things are back on track. This is the final like yeah. Now it's time to get serious because the real event's going to happen at the end of this. Right? It's just, it follows good literature, it follows bad movie formulas, it follows everything. It's just there was, a, there was a wayward venturing off, it seemed like all was lost, and then all of a sudden that things are back on track, they're restored, they learned their lesson, now let's get ready to rock. So you can see the overall flow of Exodus, because it's all going to culminate in chapter 40. It's all going to culminate, the whole book is going to end at the highest point, chapter 40. We're almost there, but... Just before that, the last thing before this section of fulfillment happens is uh, the verse 30, chapter 35. It says, Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He's filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. First person ever filled with the Holy Spirit, the artist that makes the tabernacle. It's the first time in history, in the Bible, that someone has talked about of being filled with the Spirit of God. And, and it's not like in the New Testament, regenerating salvation. In the Old Testament, when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit or the, or the Holy Spirit comes upon them, it's to empower them for a specific task or a specific purpose. It'll happen in Judges. The Spirit of God will come upon the Judges. It'll happen throughout the Old Testament. There'll be a figure who will be called to do something, and the Spirit of God will fill them. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God filling, being filled with the Holy Spirit, wasn't a salvation event. It was a purpose event. It was, it was giving you God entering into their life in some way to enable them to do something very specific for a purpose and to do it effectively and to do it well. So the Spirit would come upon kings, prophets, judges. The first one it ever came upon was an artist. I think that's awesome because I'm an artist. So... Um, not only that, but verse 34, and he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers, and blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. That's what the repetition of the next chapters will show taking place. But not only were they gifted with these abilities, but the mark of a true filling of the Holy Spirit, they were also given the ability to teach others to do these things. So it was not an oligarchy. It was not a, you're the chosen few, everybody else, you're out of luck. It was God's giving his people a gift, which is what skill, wisdom, craftsmanship, all that, giving them a gift so that not only can they use that gift to glorify God, but they can show others how to use similar giftings to glorify God as well. It's a communal thing, even here within the Old Testament. Even as God calls out a specific person, his calling out that person is for the benefit of the whole community and to pass that on as well. So, verse 2, Then Moses, Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more, because what they had already had was more than enough to do all the work. Any pastor would kill to have this problem. The church, they're giving too much. The offering plates can't hold all of what they're giving, said no pastor ever in the history of Christian. But that's what's going on here, is the people 
this is this is the, the joy of what happened is they thought they were done. They thought they were just doomed to destruction because they were abandoned by the God whose covenant they broke. And then God redeems them. And then he says, we're going to put this back on track and you're going to be a part of it. And so from that salvation, there's an overflowing joy and a generosity. And it talks about multiple times, everyone whose heart moved them. It's, it's not a, everyone who is grudgingly willing. This was a, this was a moment of, of pure joy in their salvation and that their covenant was back on track. And that salvation and covenant renewal led to an amazing generosity. Far beyond anything of like a tithe or any kind of minimum. It's a great passage for self-reflection. Because one of the marks of God's people who have truly been forgiven is how generous those people are. If someone with material things, if someone is a miser, if someone is a penny pincher, if someone is a bad tipper, if someone holds on to their finances while still claiming to love the Lord, to want to see salvation throughout the earth, to want to spread the gospel, they are wrong or they're being dishonest or they're ignorant. Because God's salvation spiritually should result in a generosity that manifests itself physically. Now this is a fine line to walk without falling into the heresy of the word faith prosperity movement. The word faith movement will teach it from the other end. And they'll say, give me all your money as proof that you're saved and God will bless you. That's backwards and that's heresy and you should never be in a church that teaches it. And there are very few things I say that about. The flip side though, the biblical admonition is God has saved you. God has given you all of these blessings spiritually. You should Give that as much and as freely as you're able. Not you should give that to me as you're able. You should give that as you're able. What does it look like? Does it look like tithing to your church? That's kind of anachronistic because there wasn't a church. There weren't ordained elders. It, it's, it's, it, you can't do a one-to-one. -one. What it should look like is you're a generous person. When you give someone something more than they deserve, you shouldn't go, oh, I should when someone comes to you with a need, a genuine need, and you're able to help them, it should be a joy helping them. Your giving should be sacrificial. It's not like they had other places they could get this gold, acacia wood, dyed yarn, purple stuff. They were in the desert. Their giving was sacrificial. It meant something. They weren't going to get it back. But yet they gave. And that's one of the marks of forgiveness. Jesus even held it forward. John 7, I believe. Or no, Luke 7. The woman comes and she's crying and she's wiping his hair with her feet. And the Pharisees are like, oh, I can't believe you're laying this. And Jesus talks about it. He says, look, she's giving freely because she's been forgiven of much. You haven't given me anything. And it's because you haven't been forgiven of much. And it's this principle that he uses. Those who are forgiven, those who have been blessed by God, then the, the desire should be to turn and to give that to other people in all ways. Not just I'll say a prayer, but I'm going to keep my checkbook devoted to me and my family. That's not full giving. That's not trust in God. That's not faith. 
but rather, and it's not either like, I'm going to give you everything I have, hoping that God will get my back. It's not either. That's God's not an ATM machine. It doesn't work like that either. But what it is, it's deeper than that. It's a foundational thing. What's your nature? And it's something that only you and God can answer, obviously. Uh, some person giving a dime is a huge gift because it's all they have. For some people, giving a million dollars is nothing because they don't even notice that it's all. So it's not that the amount or the type of gift. It's the character and the heart that it gives. And that's one of the things that I think that in this chapter we see really clearly is it's a paradigm that's going to echo all throughout the New Testament. To whom much is forgiven, then there will be the desire to give much in whatever ways they can, through their times, their talents, their gifts, and their services. That's a, that's a Methodist thing. That's what we say when people join the church. I love the church with my times, talents, gifts, and services. Uh, or prayers, presence, gifts, and services. So people say that as well. It's the same kind of thing. Whatever I've got, I'm going to use it for God's glory. It's my way of offering to the kingdom. So as you go today, as you enter the holiday season especially, think about it. I mean, this Christmas time is the ultimate time of God giving. That's why we give presents. It's a commemoration of God giving His Son. It's not a consumerist thing that we just do to keep the stores running. I mean, most people, a lot of people do but the, the theology that underlines it is the giving of God. And so we should be people who are giving as well, however we're able to do it, in whatever capacity. So next week, we're going to end. We're going to skip to chapter 40. We will give like a quick summary, but, but read through the chapters. It's a fulfillment of all that's, that, that God said to do. Then we're going to look at chapter 40. Moses is going to take a final eye, you know, uh, a, a quick scan around of everything, make sure everything's in place, and then God shows up in glory. And so we will see you next week. Thanks for coming.